But I'll tell you, you have failed so far. And if somehow you are able to sing a song now, bringing these boys together you, you haven't even met, and make something so personal, so new, that the whole world takes notice, and that your life is never the same again. But I'm telling you right now, I don't think it's going to happen. Hello and welcome to the new album show. I'm Danny Yao. The new album show features live performances and interviews with artists and musicians who have made new music. This is our first episode. In this episode, we are featuring Michael Carpenter, whose CV is hard to explain in just one sentence. He's a musician who has fronted various bands. He's a producer who has produced several albums that I have loved. He has sat in as a backing musician in many bands, and occasionally he makes solo albums. His new solo album is called The Big Radio. It's no surprise that Michael, who can pretty much do it all, pretty much does it all when he makes solo albums. But more on that later. We're very grateful for Michael for coming on and being our first guest. He's going to perform a song, we're going to have a chat, and then he's going to end with a very special cover version. The first song you're going to hear is called Father. This is a song about my kids. Every time she walks in the room I can hardly believe I am part of her and I know that she's a part of me When I see the smile on his face All my life's making sense The way he's holding on to my hand I never want it to end Every time I look at you All my dreams come true I never relay you about love Till the day that I met you I'm your father, you're my son Through the days we'll be as one Until forever I'm your dad and you're my girl Together we can change this world Until forever Until forever There's anything you need me to do Just ask, you know I'll try I'll be the one you lean on the most Till the sun burns out of the sky Every moment in my life My dreams are coming true I always thought I Oh, 
tell forever On your dad and you're my girl Together we can change this world Until forever Until forever Now you listen to me, I'm going to make this dream come true. Nobody ever said it's going to be easy. It's hard. It ain't easy to walk to the top of a mountain. It's a long, hard walk. Now, Michael, I've known you for a long time, but it's, it's weird because I think sometimes people, you know, we don't really know people's history and discography so much when we meet, when we meet someone. And even when I met you, I knew you as... A musician, you had released a couple of fantastic solo albums that I love, and then I found out you owned a studio and you played on all the records yourself. And then in the intervening years, you've done so much. Oh, you, this is your eighth album, technically. Would you would you say it is? It's it's a funny one to to count. I mean, I guess it's a matter of counting which ones are the original albums and which ones, because the whole thing. And I, and I want to segue this into something else. One of the things when you when you stop feeling like you're a contender, like you're going to be a star. And that happened about after my... When my fourth record didn't get any airplay through Europe, because I'd had a few good things happen, I went, okay, well, that's kind of it then, because I was in my mid-30s at that point and went, well, there's going to be no other records. The great thing about that is it's liberating. You can just do whatever the hell you want at that point and you just make records. So there's been a whole bunch of side projects. So I think it's my eighth original solo record. There's two Cuban Hills records, which are originals. Right, yes. There's one super hip record. And then I think that there's there's a compilation record. And then there's nine covers records. And, and you're a producer as well, which is which is what I find interesting for you because so finger in the air, how many records do you reckon you've played on in your life? Do you have I, a list? Do you keep a list? I don't keep a list. I should have kept a list because now it's impossible to go back and, and work it out. I estimate that the amount of projects I've done as a producer is up around 1,250. Wow. Of those, I've played on, I reckon, 1,000. Mm -hmm. And of those, I've been the whole band on probably 600. <laughs> projects. <laughs> projects. So that's not a whole album, so there's a single here and there for that. I want to go back and talk about the whole man thing, but I'm just going to grab your record quickly. Grab it solo if you want, Danny. It likes to be romanced a little bit, mate. Uh, so if you don't have it, it's called The Big Radio, and uh, Michael has copies here. Yep. And we'll have a website up to you know, help promote it and all that sort of thing. Um, so what is interesting is that you do play everything just about, and we'll talk about the little gaps that you called in some help in a second, but you just about play everything on this album. Yeah. Yet you also play on so many other people's records, you play on all these other bands. What ideas do you keep for yourself? Do you listen to a band, do you produce some young band and you go, I've come up with some great bass riff for this song and then you sort of go, no, nah, I'm gonna keep that to myself. That's, that's a me thing. Look, that's, that's actually a fantastic question. I think one of the things that's made me, I think, a pretty good record producer is the fact that it's not my outlet. 
it's not I'm very aware of the fact that I have my own things I have my own places where I can do the things that I need to do and so when I'm working for a client who's paying me money to be there the responsibility isn't to try and squeeze my things onto their record I'm there to do a job for them and I'm I'm really into the idea of facilitating the word record producer is a funny word because there is a stigmatism to it or whatever but I would much prefer to consider my role from a creative point of view in general is a facilitator. And that, over the last couple of years with kind of branching out, it's led to videos and photos and album artwork and stuff like that. Because often you'll build up a, a trust with a client, artist, whatever, and they'll say, oh, I need somebody to do my artwork. And I go, well, I can do it. And they go, oh, we, we know you and we trust you. You just do it. And there's not even a question really, are you any good? It's like where we trust you and we know you, which is a big thing from an art artistic point of view. People want to be with somebody they trust. Getting back to your original question, I don't keep anything for anybody. I just do what the thing is. I did, I was in Townsville yesterday um, doing some stuff at a studio up there and the producer was saying to me, and it was straight country bass playing on, I did five bass tracks in, in the morning and he kept on saying, I want this to be country bass playing. And I started off just kind of filling it out and he turned around to me and he only had to say it once. He went, country bass playing. And I went, okay, I get it. And it's simple and it's one, five, no frills. You know, and he would say, he would look at me and go, now, and that's when you had your moment. And I didn't leave there going, that bastard's restricting my creativity or anything like that, because you're there to do a job, right? So the, the, the short answer of, of the summary of that is I react to things the way that I need to, depending on the situation. I don't hold anything back for any logical reason. Um, for you, this album, you were trying to do something very, a particular genre of music mm -hmm. called power pop. Yep. And so let's just spend the next couple of hours defining what that is, because that's what people do, right? Yeah. Power pop. Pretty much. <laughs> it's a funny genre, and I'm not sure everyone here even knows what it means. Yeah. What, what are the couple of bands for you that really sort of sum that up? Look, I think, I think if, if people want to hear, want to understand what power pop is, you would go Beatles in 1966, you would go Badfinger, you would go Big Star, you would go Teenage Fan Club, you would go The Knack, and then at the broadest extremes you'd go for somebody like Jellyfish. And then in there you would mix in the Birds and the Beach Boys as well, and that's the broad thing, and the Smithereens and stuff like that as well. But. And you were making that music when I first met you. You were, and you moved away from it, and we've been friends for many years, and we, we talked about artists like Steve Earle and the more country things, and also you've had to produce a lot of different types yeah. of music as well. And you moved away from power pop. You know, to some degree, I mean, you're very melodic in those elements, but you're saying that this is, you know, this was a... A, a conscious thing to make yeah. a power pop record. But yeah, look, I am, um, from a career point of view, at the time when I thought that I could have been a contender, um, there was certainly a time when I signed with an Australian record label, um, a good label at the, at the time, it was a really great label, and, and power pop was very much a dirty word. People had associations with it that meant that it actually restricted you. So there was a very conscious thing for us to not promote the idea of things being power pop. And that, that fitted in with the fact that I was moving away from power pop anyway, and I, I want to talk about that in a second anyway. And the main reason I was moving away from power pop was because I kind of stopped listening to it. I was listening to much more alt country and Steve Mills, Steve Mills and Buddy Millers and Emmylou Harris's and Lucinda Williams's and stuff like that. And that had been happening since probably my second record. 
So naturally, I started to just mutate away from it. The reasoning behind this record is that I made it very, very, and I've managed to gather a nice little following kind of around the world. I have a nice little solid 500 to 1,000 people for anything that I'm going to do, which is not a lot, but it's not nothing either. Um, and I came up to this record, and for a long while I resisted the idea of even doing another record after the record before it, which came out about seven years ago. And the idea behind it was, okay, I want to do it one more time. I want to do one more power pop original music record. And the whole thing about it was I wanted to do it in a way that felt completely respectful of the rules of the genre. Because anybody who's out there is aware of most genres have a certain set of rules. And one of the things that really pissed me off about power pop is people would go, no, Blink-182 aren't power pop because they don't have this and they've got green hair or whatever. And so-and-so isn't power pop because... Too many harmonies. And, that, no, and you sit there and go, yeah, that's just dumb. So I just went with this record. I'm going to do one more record like that. And it's going to have big open chords, no fancy shit, no percussion, no <laughs> keyboards. There's a couple of keyboard things that snuck on there, but a shitload of harmony vocals. So short, melodic pop songs and lots and lots of harmonies and lots and lots and lots of guitars and no studio trickery and that was the framework behind it and I'm very proud of the fact that that's how it ended up. Uh, it's a fantastic record, it's a big sounding record. It's a big sounding record and, part of the, and this is one of the things for any of the studio nerds out there, what makes it big is the fact that there's not very much on it. It's like guitar at the left, guitar at the right, drums, bass, vocals and you just turn everything up. It's not rocket surgery. It's, it's very interesting to make a big record these days. It's, it's a record that when it sounds great on in a car or on the radio, but most people listen to things on headphones. Mm. What's your listening experience when it comes to records? And, and how did you... Did that come into play in terms of how people would listen to it? Oh, it didn't really come into play. I mean, like I said, when you start giving up on the idea of being a rock star, everything just becomes a big indulgent kind of thing. I'm doing this just because I want to do it. And if anybody else comes along with a ride, I'm really happy about it, and I'm happy that people have been celebrating it. But let's be very clear, I'm doing this to entertain myself at this point. Like all good artists should, because ultimately, I'm going to look back on my career and I'm going to be the one who's going to look back on it. I've got to look at everything I've done and kind of go, yep, I, yeah, there's integrity and all that sort of stuff. So my listening experiences are headphones and my car and the studio. But I don't really listen to much music in the studio because it's where I work. So it's the car and it's headphones. And it, sounded, it needed to sound really good on both of those formats. And this record, you mentioned it before, and I've heard you talk about this, kind of talked you into making it in some degree. You were kind of, you recorded a couple of songs, and I heard a couple of songs that you put up online, and then slowly the album came together. What point did you think that, you know, you've got to see this through, there's a couple of orphan songs out there that you've got to just give them a home? Yeah, look, I reckon we're in 2016 now. I reckon in 2012... I started writing songs again. Like I think that the Redemption 39 record came out in, I don't even know, how many years, or seven years before now, whatever it was then, 2009 or something yeah. like that. And I stopped thinking, I stopped thinking about the idea of being a solo artist anymore. Um, the Cuban Hills had kind of gone into a quiet period because a couple of my favorite band members had moved away for a little while. <laughs> They're back now, thank God. They're in the room right now. And, um, and so I kind of gave up on the idea of it. And not, not gave up, I just kind of stopped thinking about it from that point of view. But we're songwriters, and so we start writing songs. And the great thing about writing songs just because you want to write songs, not because they're for a project, is you go to a default position. 
Now, any songwriter who's in this room knows that there are times when they write songs for things and then there are times when they go to the default position. And the default position is usually a big open G chord followed by a D chord and a C chord and an E minor and an A minor. And so I think the first, the first song that I wrote for the project was a song called I've Been Loving You and it was, you know... Those kind of things. And it came not because I was thinking about writing songs, but because a song kind of just went, hello, I'm So you wrote that one, I kind of had some fun recording it in this kind of basic sort of way. Did a stupid video for it, put it up, people seemed to like it, and then the next one was like 12 months later or 16 months later. And the album didn't start to become an album until the start of last year. And I haven't really talked about this much at all. The studio wasn't doing very well, so it wasn't busy and I was losing a lot of money. And so I started to have to look at the viability of doing all this long term. And so me and a few of my very, very close friends got together and talked about the viability of it all and it was a pretty devastating sort of conversation and it was, you know, it was a very, very hard conversation to face the reality of that situation as a 48-year-old guy with commitments and all sorts of stuff. And then one of us kind of went, all right, well, now that we know that, we better get on with it then. And I went, what do you mean? They said, well, we may as well have some fun while we're here. And so what's on the list of things that need to be done? And I went, well, I guess I better do a power pop record. I've already got three songs done and it's time to go. And then bang, 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 bang. It all came pretty quickly after that. And it became a case of this whole thing of what would you do if you only had a certain amount of time to to do something. Now, I'm not dying or anything like that, so don't worry about any of that. But you start to approach it like, well, what would I actually do if I knew that there was a limited amount of time? And so you go and make a big studio-related recording bucket list and you just go through and you tick them all off. And that was the reason that that, came, that record came about. And it was purely indulgent and it had to be a straight power pop record. That, that discipline on that record is very interesting because you did it all yourself, which I find very interesting because it's not like you don't know lots of people who would also, you know, love and respect the rules of what you were trying yeah, to sure. do Absolutely. And, and make that happen. Um, so not only why was that decision so important because you were so disciplined with it, but how does that even work practically? Because, you know, I love Todd Rundgren, I love Prince. Is there someone helping you in the room? Because I know you have assistants, engineers and friends and yeah. help, and you play everything, or do you... Are you physically running around pressing buttons on a computer while you're doing that? Yeah. I had I had an assistant come in for when I did the bulk of the drum tracks. Somebody who just came and babysat the control, so I didn't have to keep on running up and down to do to do that. But pretty much everything else is because, of course, when you make your own records, a lot of people kind of go, "It must be easy for you to make records because you've got your own studio." But every day that you work on your own record costs you money because your overhead still stay the same. And I did a crowdfunding thing for that reason, basically. I did a little crowdfunding thing just so that I could afford to book some of my own time without going broke. But, when, but basically, you're finding yourself at, you know, the session finishes at 11 o'clock, you do a bit more admin stuff until 12 o'clock, and so you go, okay, well, I better do some overdubs on my record between 12 o'clock and 2 or 3 in the morning. And so you found yourself doing lead vocals at 2.45 in the morning and... That's just the way you do it. I mean, anybody, there's tons of artists here and that's just what the art calls for. So, How long did it take start to finish in terms of... Uh, forget the couple of songs that you did beforehand when you were really going... If you were talking album. about hours it takes to do this record, yeah. 
I would have to. How many songs on the record? Uh, <laughs> I reckon if there's 12 songs. Can I also say that I really love when people number I know, the, the songs in the back of an album? I reckon in terms of hours to do that record, I reckon it was 60 hours work. 60 hours? Okay. Quick. Because you're pretty quick. You have everything set up and ready to go, yeah, which is one of the most things to go. And for any of the muso nerds out there, I write the song and I go, okay, this is going to be what the first guitar is going to do. I pick up the guitar, plug it in with the click track, and I play the actual guitar track. Then I do the lead vocal. So I start off my track with the rhythm guitar and the final lead vocal. Because as you probably already worked out, I have limits to what I can do from a singing point of view. And I've been doing it for so long, there's going to be no revelations when it comes time to do the lead vocal. I pretty, know how, pretty much know how it's going to sound. So I do it there and then, and then I'm building a track on a finished lead vocal. And so I think that there's tracks on there that probably took me... I don't know, 45 minutes to get to the point where they were ready to hand over to the backing vocalists. And then the, there was no mix on that record that took more than 40 minutes. It's not hard, there's not a lot in it. And it's not, that's not to say that it's quick and rushed, it's just that if you focus and you've got a definite thing you're going for, you don't have to fuck around with other things. Sorry, podcasters. But you don't have to muck, you don't have to muck around with all the alternate things because you're just going to go, well, that's how I want that to sound. And there became a template for it in a lot of ways, so it became very quick. And you, weren't also, you also weren't putting it to a vote or anything like that? Maybe. Yeah, far out, man. That's one of the best things about solo records. It's a democracy of one. Well, it almost is, because you mentioned the backing vocalists. Yep. Uh, you had a couple of people uh, that you reached out to to do the backing vocals, the really intricate harmonies on the record. Uh, and do you want to say who they are? Yeah, sure. I, so my best friend in the world, I'm very, very lucky. I have a lot of very, very great friends, but my best friend in the world is a guy called Chris Murphy. You probably know him. He was on Australian Idol a fair few years ago. Probably the best singer you're ever going to hear. If there's one better singer, it's his brother, Courtney. And even that, I wouldn't say that they're better than each other. They're both amazing singers. So when it came time to conceptualise this record, the only other thing I knew, and I'm a very, very experienced backing vocalist, is that I did not want to sing one single backing vocal. And that was because too much of my voice would have driven, driven me nuts. Now, I've done that on a lot of my records, but on this record, I wanted it to be a classic power pop record, and it couldn't be all me. And so the way it would work was I would do, get to the point where it was backing vocal times, I would record all the backing vocals, lay them all out, and send them over to them, and they would replace them and send them back to me. Because so they live in Perth, right? They live in Perth. So you would just send them the stems of the vocal arrangement, they would do them exactly and send them back to me. Did they have a say? Did they sort of go, hey, we, we thought going to this note instead or anything like that? Or do you just go, look, this is my baby and this is what I want to do? They had no say. <laughs> but, but again, and that wasn't, that wasn't being disrespectful to them, but I know what I want. And it's that whole thing. If I, was, I booked them to do the backing vocals in the record and I knew what I wanted them to do. And so they did it. And of course... I'd send over these backing vocals that sounded a bit like me and then they'd come back sounding like them. So it didn't sound like me anyway because it was just the way that they did them. And they were such, they're such good singers, man. So we're getting a sense that this is a very, very personal record for you. In yeah. that sense, you worked through it and... Tell me about... You played a couple of songs. Uh, Father in particular, I thought, was... It's very clear what that's about. Do you want to talk about that in terms of... Like, I find it surprising that in the many, many records you put out, and you've had kids for a long time, 
it's taken you this long to do that. It feels like songwriters do that. Yeah, you know, well, McCartney and Ben Folds, they want to do it one or two records in, right? Yeah, well, the great thing, I mean, the thing, not the great thing, the thing about it is it's not through lack of trying. I reckon I've written five shit songs about my kids. And, um, and the, like, really. And I actually, I actually wrote one for this, this record, um, and it was called It's All For You. And I sent it off to my mate Chris Murphy, Chris who I spoke about, and he was kind of the conduit through a lot of the new songs, and he, and he, and he I sent it off to him, and I didn't say anything about, about it at all, and he came back and he went, Michael, you know I love you, but I think, you can do, I think your kids deserve better than that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I listened to it the other day, and it's not bad, it's just, uh, you know, there were, I think he meant that there was a better song coming, and, there, and it was, and so, um, so I've been thinking about them, and I'm very, very close to my children. They're 12 and 7, and, and we're very, very close. And there was this one day where um, my daughter and my wife had gone out, and so I was sitting at home with my little boy, and he was, you know, laying in the lounge being a six-year-old boy at the time, you know, with all this cuteness. And I, just, and I was just sitting there doodling around on the guitar, and, um, and I just turned around and looked at him, and he just gave me this particular kind of look, and you just drum a G chord, and then the, um, the line, um, I can't remember the, whatever the third line of the song is, but it ended up with the line, you know, uh, When he's holding on to my hand, I never want it to end. Because he's at that age where a lot of the six-year-old boys, when they go into school, are like, Dad, don't hold on to my hand. But he's the other way. We walk out in the street and my 12-year-old daughter's the same. She's like, snuggles right up. And, and the song came in about four minutes after that. It just all came and it was very, 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 very easy. And I recorded it the next day, the video the next day, and it was available on the Thursday before Father's Day. I think it all happened. And it's one of the most special things I'm ever gonna do. And the great thing about it from an artistic point of view, no one ever can take that stuff away from me or them. And so that's, you do it for that sort of stuff as well. And what do they think about it? Oh, they love it. They were, there was a thing where I did the video and I, hadn't, I didn't tell them I had written the song. And the mum had gone to work in the morning and so we were just at home and I said, I want to play you something. And uh, I said, it's very, very important that you, know, you, you pay attention. They were getting ready for school and so they got ready, got ready for school really early. And we sat on the lounge and I brought up the TV with the video. And the video is just a black and white thing with me staring at the camera. And I had a seat right next to me and I played it to them and they got every single word. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. It's a sort of, it was exactly what it was meant to be. What about the rest of the record? What do you, because Power Pop is really great for kids sometimes. Like, it's yeah. so melodic and fun and loud. Do they like your music? Oh, look, my kids have gone through a thing over the last couple of years of slowly discovering all of the things, you know. And, you know, now I'm at the point, and they're both music nerds, particularly the little bloke. And so something will come on and random on a playlist and he'll go, Dad, is that you playing drums? Yes, Josh. You know. And so they started to pick particular things. But they, 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 like, they like my stuff. And, and that's nice. I don't force it on them. I don't, they don't have to. You know. The fact that they love me is enough, but the fact that they like my music is a nice little bonus. Um, I do want to say one more thing. I know I'm going over time, but one of the things that was really gratifying, I think the third video I put up for the record was for a song called Too Late, which I wanted to do tonight, but I'm not, not going to get a chance to do it. Um, and my friend Kerry, who isn't here tonight, her best comment on it was, I love a grown-up love song. And I just kind of went, 
that's what I'm doing at this point. You know, I'm not writing songs about chasing 20-year-old girls or anything like that. I'm writing songs about the people around me and the lives I'm seeing around me. Friends who are going through really, really tough times that none of us ever saw coming. You know, relationships are hard work, man. And a lot of the record is about other people, like what I'm witnessing, seeing other people's stories. You know, and seeing that that person and that person, you know, if they'd have done this, maybe it'd be different and stuff like that. So it's a power pop album of grown up love songs, I guess. And for a long while, it was going to be called Grown Up Love Songs, but I chickened out at last moment. Uh, look, I, I love that part of the record, and I love that part. Of, hopefully, we'll be talking to more songwriters in the same place because, yeah. Look, at it. have you ever seen Avenue Q, Michael? Have you ever seen that? No, it's, no. it's a musical about Muppets, but the premise of it is instead of Muppets teaching you how to spell, it's Muppets teaching you how to deal with landlords, pay rent, and you know dealing with intolerant people who don't like you being gay and all those sort of things. It's hilarious. And, and I think that there is a real movement there where people like Amy Mann are taking really traditional songwriting, classic songwriting. And yeah, because I think that we're at a point where, where we're safe enough to be able to talk about what it's really like, you know, without having to sugarcoat it, especially because the music industry has been changed so dramatically over the last five or six years or a bit longer. And so people are doing things for purely artistic reasons. Once you remove those shackles, people can come up with great artistic, heavy content sort of things. And when you're talking about your Amy Manns and your Steve Earls and your Sam Phillipses and stuff like that, they write about what life's really like from their perspective. And it's, it's powerful and weighty sort of stuff. And it carries a lot of currency with me as I become not a 25-year-old boy, you know? You have another album coming up? Yes, my, my, <laughs> my wonderful band, the Q I've got two, actually. I've got them queued up at this point. Uh, I finished a new record with, with the Cuban Hills, so they're my alt-country band, of which there are members and supplemental members in the, uh, in the audience. And, um, and that's the exact opposite to the Michael Carpenter experience, because I don't play anything on that. I play a little bit of guitar, and I let them do their thing because they're amazing and I tell them to their faces how amazing they are. And, um, and so I just basically provide the songs and they play and I had a good time with it. And you said in other interviews that this is the last power now, pop record. The wording is very important. It's the last power pop album of original material. So people <laughs> go, it's your last album. And I go, no. It's the last album of power pop material, original material. And why is that? Uh, look, when I recorded the Redemption record, Redemption 39 record, also available for sale tonight, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd always dreamed of making a record as good as that. Like, we all have our thing of one day we want to make a record as good as something or other, and I made that record, and, and in a lot of ways I didn't feel like I could top it. And so I just avoided the idea of topping it for a long period of time. And um, it was only by setting stricter parameters with this one that I felt like I could top it. And now that I've done that, I don't want to be one of these guys that just keeps on dipping back into the same well again. I think that that's disrespectful to yourself. And, and so I don't feel like I'm, I have anything else I really want to say in the power pop genre for me because I don't really listen to that much of it anymore, or if I do, I go and listen to the stuff I always listen to. So I feel like a bit of a fraud, that whole thing of, I don't feel like I should be in a genre that I don't engage with. So I'm much more interested in engaging in the genre that I engage with. So that's, a, that's okay. there's pure reasoning behind it. Well, there hopefully will be another 1,200 projects <laughs> to look forward to in your career, Michael. Undoubtedly. Um, 
you got a cover that yeah. I asked that I asked everyone to choose a cover and you've chosen one and uh, we've got a bit of time, so if, if you could do an extra treat, if you want to do another song from your record, if you want to do Too Late or something. Yeah, do I do another song or do I do the Father song? Yeah, if you want to do Father again. Yeah, yeah, especially, father again. especially after now that we've talked about it, it might yeah, be okay. nice for the audience. Right. So what but are, what are do cover. Yeah, the cover. So, I almost said no to you when you said this. Because <laughs> I almost wanted to have a rule of... Someone just yelled out Wonderwall, and it's pretty close to being Wonderwall, where I don't know if anyone... I like Wonderwall. I don't know if... if um, I find that insulting. Actually, no, I'm going to set you up with that. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic song, I love it. And actually, I don't know if I've heard that many covers of this particular no, song by this particular band. Yeah. But God, I've heard a lot of covers by this band. Yeah, yeah. I've recorded a lot of covers of this band. And it's a song by the Beatles. Yeah! Yeah, you might have heard of them. Uh, and they are pretty much... This, the songbook, aren't they? You know, those songs have been reinterpreted and, and done in so many different ways. Yeah, I think that there's a reason that they're above everybody else, and it's just because the variety of songwriting over a very, very short period of time, when you had that magical combination of those personalities spurring each other on, I think that that's a combination that is that may have only may happen in various kind of degrees, only I don't know what four or five times in a generation or two generations. So. The fact that they're revered for their songwriting so highly, I think, is not surprising. So, I'm going to walk off stage and I'm going to leave Michael to... Do you want to introduce what the song is? Yeah, okay. So, when I do this song at, at, at shows, and, it, and again, it was one of those tricky things. As somebody who's put out about 400 covers records saying, can you do a cover, was a bit difficult to pick. But I haven't recorded this one, so I thought that would be the nice novelty of it. And a lot of people talk about the genesis of power pop, and I always introduce this song as the greatest pop song ever. And, um, and I, it's a love song, and it's a heavy love song, and it's a beautiful song. And um, we'll see if you know it as we go through it. I want 
hold your hand And when I touch you I feel happy inside It's such a feeling that my love I can't hide, I can't hide, I can't hide Yeah, you got that something I think you'll understand When I feel that something I wanna hold your hand. 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 Pretty good song, right? Didn't write that one. Thanks to Michael Carpenter for that great performance. You will have noted that Michael mentioned playing another song. Here's what happened. It was our very first recording and Michael played two songs and our audio recorder didn't work. He performed Father again and that was at the start of the show. We did get a crappy phone quality recording of the two songs that he did and we've got them as videos up online along with Michael's cover of I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Check them out at thenewalbumshow.com and you can find out more about Michael there, as well as on his website, mcarp.com, and follow him on Twitter at StageMC. You can follow me, Danny, on Instagram or Twitter at YowAmI, that's Y-A-U-A-M-I, and you can follow the show at The New Album Show on all your social media channels. I'm still working on what this show is, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, now go listen to something new.